0: Well, for the uh, last few weeks now, we've been getting to grips with why we're here as a church. Uh, More specifically, uh, we've been looking to answer this basic question, what kind of church are we? If you remember last time, uh, we saw something of the importance of community. It's like when we get community right, it absolutely fuels our mission. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that our effectiveness in mission as a church stands or falls on the strength of community that people find and encounter when they come into contact with us. What I want to do today is look at another aspect of church life that I believe also has the potential to powerfully, powerfully fuel our mission, namely worship. If you want to turn to it, uh, we're going to be focusing in on John chapter 4, where Jesus gives us uh, some pretty phenomenal insights into how to worship just so you know where we're going, here are the kind of signposts. Uh, I want to start by highlighting a number of practical barriers to worship, then we'll get to see Jesus teaching on what worship should actually look like, and then I want to round things off by quickly pointing to what this looks like for us as a church. Now, at the point where we join this particular story, Jesus is walking through Samaria. He begins to get weary, uh, and so he looks for somewhere to sit down and rest. And it's at that point where we enter the story. Second half of verse 6, John chapter 4, verse 6. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's the sixth hour after sunrise, in other words, it would have been around noon. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, we need to pause there, because culturally speaking, this is wrong on any number of levels. First of all, women back in the first century don't go to the well at noon. They go early in the morning before anything else is really happening. They stock up on their water supplies for the day before it gets too hot to be lumbering around carrying water in the glaring sun. But for reasons that will become apparent, this woman is there at noon. Second thing that's wrong uh, in this account, Jews do not speak to Samaritans. To call the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans one of racial tension would be something of an understatement. The Jews absolutely despised the Samaritans. There's a level of hatred and opposition here that you would have to dig deep in history to find. And then the third thing that's wrong here is devout Jewish men, and Jesus was one of those, devout Jewish men don't engage women in conversation in public. Back in that culture, many devout Jewish men wouldn't even have allowed themselves to be alone with a woman. If that was unavoidable, they'd certainly not have entered into conversation with her. In their minds, the risks were way too high. The risk of gossip, impurity, ultimately of being drawn into immorality. Now I think all of this helps to explain the woman's response to Jesus' request for water. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Reading on, verse 10, Jesus answered her, we see the first barrier to worship that I want to highlight to you. Here it is, you are drinking from the wrong well. You're drinking from the wrong well. Jesus asked this woman for a drink of water and she says, why on earth would you talk to me? I'm a Samaritan. There are racial issues between the two of us. I'm a woman. You are a man. There are cultural, social rules that keep us from interacting with one another. Why would you ask me to get you a drink? Jesus' response is, if you knew who was asking you, actually you would ask me. And then he begins to outline the difference between drinking from a well that satisfies for merely a moment and drinking from a well that satisfies forever. He draws this sharp contrast between the two. The main problem with the natural well is it doesn't work long term. It only works for a moment and then you have to return to it to draw more water. But Jesus here offers something that satisfies forever and ever and ever. I believe this is a huge issue in our culture today. If you think about it, there are a whole bunch of things that we go to over and over and over and over again, despite the fact they only satisfy for a moment. They leave us thirsting for more. I want to quickly highlight three of the most common ones. First one, is money and comfort. Let's be honest. New stuff is nice. It's like there's this emotive response in us to trinkets and toys. You can almost get a high from new stuff. But that leaves us in a perilous position because everything that starts off new becomes old very, very quickly. It's like the high of what's new rarely even wears off before we want to replace it with something even newer. So we go from new thing to new thing to new thing and keep on drawing from that well. Those new clothes, that new house, the new shoes, the new handbag, that new bit of tech, whatever it is that you collect, it feels great for a second, makes everything settle down for a moment but it won't be long before it loses its power and allure and it will be time for something else that's even newer. I'll tell you, Apple has absolutely dialed into that and is owning us right now. It's a four. Oh look, it's a five. We go ahead and buy it and are immediately looking forward to the launch of the six. S is intoxicating and most of us are inebriated with the stuff of future eBay sales to the extent we don't even realise that we're drinking the equivalent of sand. The first well that so many of us go to over and over and over again is money and comfort. Here's the second well. Relationships and sex. In the same way that money and comfort aren't intrinsically evil or wrong, relationships and sex aren't evil or wrong in and of themselves. The problem is when you elevate them beyond and above what God created them for. Relationships and sex are gifts to us from God. He is the author, the creator, the inventor of those things. But when you elevate them beyond where they should be, you leave nothing for yourself but heartache and disappointment. Women, let me address you for a moment. You will never ever find a man who completes you. You won't. Some of you husbands think maybe your wife might have done, they haven't. Such is the brokenness of the human heart in need of a Saviour. If you found the perfect man who thought nothing but of you and how to romance you and how to love you well. And if you came home every single day to rose petals strewn on the ground around your house and six-pack abs gleaming while he changed the kids' nappies, you'd be like, why does he keep doing that with the roses? and why doesn't he let me do anything? I mean, do you think I'm an idiot? You you don't think I could change a nappy? It might take a while to get there, but eventually you would, and you'll begin to fantasize about a guy with a gut who slobs around and does nothing all day, because a man isn't going to satisfy what has gone wrong in you. Only Jesus will do that. And guys, let me address you for a moment. If you came home to, dare I say, a scantily clad wife who was cooking you a 16-ounce slab of steak, having sorted out the kids and put them to bed and recorded the football highlights for you to watch at your leisure, I'm not saying that wouldn't be a great day, but I'm I'm saying that over time you would begin to fantasize about a salad and about some other woman, because your heart is broken. You need a saviour, and she can't ultimately fix it. If you put all of your hope in a relationship, at the end of the day, it is not going to work. Nobody can fully satisfy your cravings for the relationship which ultimately you were created and designed, you were wired to have with God Himself. And then the third well that I think a lot of us run to is this respect and success. We want approval, we want acceptance, we want other people to look at us and be really incredibly impressed. We want to be the one who's pointed to as the example, in a good way. We we want to be shown respect. But listen to me, that pat on the back from man is ever so fleeting. The same guy who pats you on the back one day has the potential the very next day to turn around and stab you in it. If you think about it, What more affirmation do you need than the cross of Jesus Christ? How utterly, utterly insignificant is a man's good job compared to the fact that God, knowing you, knowing your motivations knowing the entirety of your life before you'd even lived it, still willingly chose to die on a cross for you. In the wisdom literature, the Old Testament, you you, you find these two stories that I think are so vitally important to us today. In the book of Job, the guy Job loses everything. And in the midst of that, He finds out that God is enough, even if you lose everything. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gets everything. And Solomon should be a devastating warning to all of us, because Solomon is screaming at the top of his voice, hey, it doesn't work. Look, I have 300 wives. It still doesn't work. I've built all of them a house. I've built the Lord's temple. I've built my own mansion. I've planted forests. I've thrown parties so big and so lavish that they're recorded in the annals of history. And it's meaningless. All of it is meaningless. And Solomon sounds the alarm to you and me. Who will probably never be either Job or Solomon. We're kind of stuck somewhere between the two men trying to figure out for ourselves what Solomon already knows. I mean, most of us in the room are never ever going to be wealthy enough or powerful enough to get right to the very end of the line. And so we will always have something more to pursue, something new to try to get, some new hope that we're cranking up in the hope that it will bring us life. And you need to hear, it is not going to work. But until we realise this, I'd suggest our worship of Jesus is always ever going to be lukewarm. We'll worship him with our mouths, but our heart will be elsewhere. Or our worship of Jesus will be dependent on whether we're getting satisfaction from those other wells. Or worse still, we'll worship Jesus in order to try and manipulate him into giving us all that other stuff. When ultimately, what we really need, what we really crave is found in him. So that's the first obstacle to worship, we are digging in the wrong wells. Let's look at what comes next, verse 16, Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband, the fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband." what you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Second barrier to worship we encounter here is unconfessed sin. The reason for the woman being out at the well at noon is she is living with shame. She's hiding from a culture that views her as in some way unclean. And Jesus addresses it head on. He addresses her sin. He says, you're right. I know you don't have a husband. You've had five of them, and you're not married to the guy you're living with right now. Now let me be really clear on this. Unrepentant, unconfessed sin will not separate you from the saving love of Christ if you've been genuinely born again. But it will most definitely affect your ability to worship. It will most definitely affect your nearness to God, your awareness of the presence of God, your ability to hear and learn from Him. And it doesn't have to be, well look, I've had five husbands and the guy I'm living with now isn't my husband. I think what we often do is that kills our ability to worship freely, is we justify or condone sin in our lives. We think that because we haven't committed adultery or murdered someone, then we're okay, and so we don't repent of all the other junk in our life. But all the time There is something inside us, niggling away, telling us that we're not okay. And so, with unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, worship will suffer. It really will. Why is that such a big deal? I'll tell you why. You were created to worship. And if you're not worshipping Jesus, you will be worshipping something else, but whatever that something else is, it will not be able to hold up under the weight of your expectations of it. If you're going to wholeheartedly worship Jesus, if you're ever going to find true satisfaction in life, you need to be quick to repent and confess. Okay, one more barrier to worship. Let's keep reading, verse 20. The Samaritan woman says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is actually in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So here's the third barrier to worship, it's a simple one, ignorance. Bottom line is, you cannot worship what you do not know and unfortunately, We're a culture that tends towards creating a God in our own minds and worshipping this God of our own creation. And we do this because, if truth be told, we find the God of the Bible ever so slightly too edgy for our liking. And so we pull back on all the wrath stuff and God being angry towards sinners because, I mean, that's not so popular, is it? It's like we give Him an extreme makeover And so people strip him of his deity, they strip him of his holiness and his authority and his power and his justice. And then we wonder why people don't worship him. Listen, the God of the Bible is beyond terrifying. The Bible tells us that on his return, men will cry out for mountains to fall on them. This is the God of the Bible. What's happened is, we've been allowed to create in our own minds our own version of the God we worship. And worship always suffers when we box God into something or someone we can understand and we can accept. Worship explodes from this reality. You are a rebellious wicked sinner, you are and God has loved you in Christ. There are absolutely no secrets from Him and yet still He pursued, reached out to you, offered you life, saved you, I tell you, secrecy is a myth. This woman in this account doesn't have any secrets. God knows. And yet he has still extended mercy and grace in the cross. I think it's at that place that worship can explode. If you remove the fact that you're a sinner... the equation, if you elevate yourself to some other place, if you exhort yourself and go well at heart I'm not really that bad, truth be told I'm actually quite a good person and if you belittle God by stripping away aspects of his power then you're always going to struggle to worship. Worship flourishes, it prospers, it grows when you know who you are, you know who God is, you see how massive that gap, that chasm is between you and you see how Jesus has filled it. That's where worship explodes. Those are the three barriers to worship we see in this passage. Worshipping the wrong thing, unconfessed sin and ignorance. And I reckon if you struggle to enter into worship, I'll be willing to bet that it is probably down to one of those three areas. Let's keep reading. Jesus is now going to tell us what worship actually is. Verse 23, he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, although it goes without saying that the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in our worship, it's important to realise that when Jesus instructs us to worship in spirit and truth here, he's actually primarily referring to our own spirit, our unseen inner consciousness that determines our character and our attitudes, who we are, what we think, how we feel, the the seat, the root of our emotions. In other words, true worship involves not only our physical bodies but also our inner being. It's kind of the opposite of empty formalism, dry ritual, tradition, mere outward show. You see, for Jesus, real worship must come, it must spring up from the Spirit within us, it must have heart, it must be genuine, it must be real, it must engage in some way our emotions. If you like then, God is Seeking worshippers with inflamed hearts and informed minds. And those two things are meant to feed off, to stimulate one another. Problem is, most of us would tend to lean towards one or the other. Some of you are more intellectual, so you want a tight theological grid that lines out how God works and where you fit within it all, how that flows together. You're not prone to outward shows of emotion, not prone to let your feelings show themselves in public. In fact, you kind of look at emotion as though it's the enemy, it's to be avoided at all costs. And then other people are like, are you kidding me? I mean, why do you read so much? That's cold, that's dead, that's dry, that's pointless. You always want to talk about doctrine, that's the problem. We should just sing and pray and hold hands and hug and weep and laugh. If we could just love Jesus with our hearts, then we'd be fine. But, it is not supposed to be a choice between the two. It is not either or. One, and I've painted slight caricatures that maybe don't help, but one leads to the other. Both really are important. We worship in spirit and in truth, we have an informed mind through the revealed Word of God. And as we get to grips with God's Word, it stirs our spirit and inflames our heart. And the inflamed heart then creates the energy and the desire and the passion to grow in understanding. Do you see? Our intellect isn't at odds with our emotions and our emotions aren't at odds with our intellect. Both are crucially important, if we're to be the kinds of worshippers that I believe God's looking for. So I want to appeal to you. Study. Read. Stretch your understanding and knowledge of God and His purposes in history and in eternity. And let it fuel white hot, passionate worship of Him. Now, just by way of an aside, although I've taken Jesus' instruction here for us to worship the Father in spirit to mean that worship must come from our own spirit inside us, actually, it can't really be divorced from the crucial role of the Holy Spirit in our worship. So, until you allow the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, to get to work on your own spirit, probably you're always going to struggle to worship. You need to allow His Spirit to blow on the embers of your spirit, fan it to flame, stir it into life. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And so he unpacks the barriers to worship. Then he says, look, here's how you're going to worship. And her response is just, whatever. When the Messiah arrives he'll sort all of this stuff out. And Jesus is like, That is what just happened. I just sorted it all out. I just figured it all out for us. I'm the Messiah. Look at a response, verse 27. Then the disciples returned and were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman but no one asked, in fact, probably learnt by now not to dare to ask Jesus what seemed like obvious questions because he would completely undo you, but they were thinking it nonetheless, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. You see the immediate change in her. This lady has been avoiding the hostilities of the men and women in town. She meets Jesus. He exposes her sin in a compassionate, forgiving way. And now she's a different person. Now she's running into town going, you've got to come and hear this guy. He told me everything about myself. You've got to come and check this out. I tell you, when you meet Jesus, when you encounter him for yourself, when you really get to know him and experience his grace and his goodness and his love towards you, you won't need a sermon telling you to witness You won't need a finely crafted talk explaining how to worship. It will just come naturally. Let's keep going. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Just as the woman at the well didn't quite get what was going on and needed Jesus to show her that she was digging in the wrong well. She had some sin that needed to be confessed and repented of. She had some ignorance some wrong thinking that needed clearing up. The disciples here are talking about a sandwich and Jesus is going, guys, there are bigger things going on here than lunch. It's like they couldn't see beyond the task of getting food for Jesus. So what's in all of this for us? Well, I think there's, first of all, an important lesson here. Please don't let the task overtake the task giver as you go to school, as you study for your degree, as you go to work every day, as you stay at home to look after the kids, don't be so consumed with it all that you lose sight of the one is really all about. And maybe as you serve in the church, don't get so caught up with your role and your task, your potential ministry, you miss the one you're doing it all for. We do the task because of the task giver, because we love the task giver, not for the task's sake. Really viewed like that, all of life is worship. As Paul puts it in Colossians three twenty three. whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Now if this is an important reminder for everything we do, certainly hugely relevant to what happens here on a Sunday when we gather together. And so as we gather together like this for corporate worship, again, we don't do it because that's just what we do. We're not governed by the quality of the music, whether or not we like the songs or the clothes that the band are wearing. It's not dependent on, no pressure, it's not dependent on how we're feeling, What kind of week we've had? What's going on back at home right now? It's all about Jesus. It's all about His glory. It's all for the Lord. We're trying to proclaim the glory and goodness of Jesus and we're going to do that whenever, wherever we meet, week in, week out. I really believe there was something spiritually profound about what happens when God's people, the church, gather to worship. In Psalm 42, when when David's in deep despair, he remembers the great assembly. He remembers leading God's people with shouts of joy and thanksgiving. He remembers worshipping in the house of God, and as he recalls that, it strengthens him. He longs to be back there again. Listen, as we gather together like this, it's a lot more than just attending a meeting. Something's happening here. As we gather and we humble ourselves before God and we say, we can't, you can, please help us. I'm not going to drink from these other wells anymore. I'm going to drink from you and be satisfied in you. That's true worship. It strengthens us it brings much glory to God. Wherever you're at, I want you to try and raise your expectation levels. As we gather to worship as a church, please prepare yourselves, prepare your hearts, prepare your minds. Don't settle for merely being a spectator. Prepare to participate. Please don't be passive. Give yourselves to worship. This is about so much more than just singing a few songs and then going for coffee. It's about encountering the living God. It is opening ourselves to receive from Him. It is refreshing after the week we've just had. It's kind of like spiritual steroids for the week we're about to go into. It's life, it's hope, it's peace, it's joy, it's strength to us so much more for us. As we start living in the good of this, as we start worshipping as God intends us to, worshipping as Jesus has enabled us to, worship, to coin a phrase, becomes the fuel for mission's flame. So as we push the boundaries in our worship, as we get to see and experience, encounter more of who God is, propels us out to speak much of him, to draw in many more worshippers to him. And so as I wrap up, I just want to give you an opportunity for a moment or two to reflect on what you've just heard. I want to ask you, do you recognise any barriers in you to worship? First of all, are you digging in the wrong well? Maybe not so sure. How do I answer that question? Here's how you answer that question. Be honest, what are you really after in life? What do you lay in bed at night thinking about wrestling with, grappling with? What's that thing you're chasing after? What is it that In your mind, if you got it, all of life would be better. Maybe you're single and it's a spouse. Maybe it's a job you want. Maybe it's getting that qualification. Maybe it's all about your reputation. What's that thing that you're really after? What well are you digging in? Because if you're pulling up the bucket from the wrong well, it really doesn't matter what's in it, it's not going to satisfy. Is your pursuit, it is your greatest desire to know God, to worship Him, to make much of Him? Are you digging in the wrong well? What do you have? Unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your life. If so, in some way, you're being robbed of the true joy of worship. The joy of worship occurs when you're honest about your shortcomings, your weaknesses, and in the midst of it all, you get to experience more of the grace of God. To know you're guilty and to find out that nonetheless you are forgiven is an unbelievably powerful igniter of worship, Or maybe you're just ignorant. And I don't mean that harshly or cruelly. You need to know that although you fall short of God's holy standards, he has extended grace to you in Christ so that what's broken can be restored. So you might be satisfied and he might be glorified. I want to invite you to stand. In a few moments, the kids are going to come back in, the musicians will come up to the front. You get an extended opportunity to apply this message. I want to implore you to apply this message. I want to plead with you to do business with God right now, don't leave it till later. I'm asking you to quit drinking from wells that just leave you feeling more thirsty. Even now, open yourself to, to drink, to receive from the living water that Jesus offers. We you just decide, resolve right now, that yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life. Right now, what's stopping you? Repent of it. Get right with God. Just in your mind, quietly, say, "God, I'm so sorry. I confess this to you." I repent of it. I turn my back on it. I want to live your way from now on. I want to be free from those condemning whispers that the enemy puts in my mind wherever I gather to worship, wherever I try and worship. I want to receive your forgiveness and your grace right now. Maybe, if like the Samaritan woman in this story, you've lived your whole life up until now pretty much ignorant of Jesus. You wouldn't say you're a follower of him. You're here because, yeah, you you want to find out a bit more about him. You're intrigued or maybe a friend just dragged you here under duress. I want to appeal to you. What's what's stopping you doing what this woman did and saying, no, I follow Jesus. I give my life to him. I'm running around telling others that, that, that I think I've just found the one it's all about. Maybe you've still got some questions or issues that hold you back. There are people in the church who would love to answer those questions, chat with you at the end. Maybe right now you just want to say, Jesus, if you're real, please show yourself to be real to me. You were created to worship. I want to encourage you to worship the only one who's ultimately worthy of your worship that's why we're here it's what we're doing it's all for God's glory